We've all heard that if you could win the morning, you could win the day. One of the ways to doing that is to create regular rituals and routines so you don't have to think about what you need to do. And if you could set up routines and habits, especially early in the day, you could benefit from the science momentum and create positive momentum as opposed to being reactive. Hello humans, welcome to the M Word, the Manx Sports Podcast, brought to you by Martin, that's me, and Matt, that's him. Hello Matthew. Hello. Welcome back, again, I say that every week, but you're here <laughs> all the week, so, you well? Yeah. We're not going to talk corona, because no, when this goes out in a couple of weeks it'll be under control, and we'll be unquarantined. Good Hopefully. subject to stay away from. Yeah, no, let's not talk about it. I've not got much to talk about, so let's plow on, because we've got loads to talk about. First of all, it's just a quick shout out to billboards, our advertisers, uh, oh, sorry, our sponsors, should I say. Uh, digital advertising, you'll see them around Douglas. Get in touch with the guys, get your brand out there, make people aware of what you're doing uh, and what your business is up to. Uh, they're really helpful guys. They'll c- cater to what you need in regard to your budget and what you're looking to, to get out, out of it the other side. So give the guys a shout at billboards.im, the future of advertising. And uh, again, thanks to those guys for helping us out. So uh, today we're joined by Sam. Welcome, Sam. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Just to go to our intro there, uh, I don't know whether anyone recognised the voice on the on the intro. Nope. That was uh, Jim Quick, I think is how you pronounce his name, uh, off a YouTube channel called Be Inspired. I think it's got a 7.2 million odd followers. And that uh, clip, which is in the footnotes, is he talks a lot about habit. So when I was first uh, given Sam's name to look at, the first place I went was Instagram. And within two minutes of looking at his Instagram feed, it was, I need this guy on, I need to learn off this guy, we need to understand what his message is and what he does. Uh, so again, in the footnotes, you'll find his Instagram feed. We had a brief chat before we before we did the pod, and immediately everything we're about in regard to habit, motivation, all those things, and, and really part of that then, how, you, how your mind's ticking around that uh, is what I see out of Sam, so I'm pretty excited about this pod and looking forward to having a good chat, so no pressure either. <laughs> yeah, you, you set the standard high there. Yeah, yeah, so, so welcome. So first of all, kick off. Mm. You will come over Manx, 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 or Manx as the hills. Uh, I am Manx. Both right. my parents and pretty much all my family before me are Irish. So all right, okay, yeah. So whereabouts on the island were you born? Uh, Kurt Michael, um, and yeah, been there ever since. Really, uh, I've been across to uni for a few years and to um, back and forth. But yeah, Kurt Michael my whole life. I uh, I don't think I actually know anyone from Kurt Michael. Normal place to be. Yeah, uh, first one. It's apparently. a mighty area of the. the island. So, so schooling there as well, I assume, on the mm-hmm. corner. Whatever. Yeah. Michael School, I assume, it is. Yep. Running around like a feral child in the field. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and we doing sport there? Uh, not really, to be honest. Primary school wise, um, I did a lot of things, but I wasn't really particularly good at anything. Right. Um, I, I was, I think, all right at running fast in a straight line for a time. Um, okay. I was like. One of, the fast, like Benz or something. one of the fastest kids in school right. uh, for like 100 meters or whatever right. whatever distance it was as a kid but yeah anything to do with anything longer than that wasn't that great oh, right. okay so it's not but so yeah. much the bends it was the distance that was i think it was yeah it was, i don't think it was the coordination of turning it was oh, more right. the the distance <laughs> side of it and uh when you're uh and well i see to go back to the question the school on the corner then kurt michael is that pri- primary school or yeah. upper school it's primary yeah, school. yeah yeah that's the so when you finish there where do you so you can go to a few, and Kurt Michael, you can people either most people go to QE2 but you can go oh, to right. Ramsey if you want and all that sort of thing I think nowadays you can just choose whichever school you want to go to oh, anyway right. secondary school wise I was going to say it's a hike either way but that's a, if you're overseas yeah. listener you'll roll your eyes that someone has to drive 15 minutes to get to school I know yeah, yeah. well that bus I think 
is a good 40 minutes because of how many steps and all that uh, sort of speed right. and that sort of thing but yeah right. so at upper school high school were you doing sports there um, I get well actually I went through a bit of a, a different phase in secondary school I ended up being more down like the computer game sort of route and okay. not really a huge amount of sport I was a bit I was pretty overweight um, when all the way through till about year 11 I think and um, I did the more obscure sports like um, rollerblading and BMXing and I think I was alright at the school softball team you know just right, random okay. stuff like that I just I wasn't really ever good enough for foot. I didn't really like football ever to be honest um, I played a little bit of rugby in primary school um, down at Douglas Rugby Club and then when I got to secondary school wasn't really that interested and yeah I just wasn't really that good at very many sports other than uh, I put a fair bit of time into basketball right. with the oh, what was his name Graham Bassett I don't know if he still does stuff, but um, he was like Mr. Isle of Man basketball back in the day. Okay. He was the coach that everybody wanted to be coached by. And um, yeah, so I did a fair bit of basketball, again, up until about year 11-ish. So what's that, like 15, 16 yeah. This is the thing nowadays, age. people refer to year 12, 13. It's I like know, an American thing that seems to have bled into, our, yeah. into, into, into this side of the the ocean and I have no idea it was just you were 12, 13, 14 or 15 but they it's say year 11 say so I go what you're 11 it was like no I'm like 14 it's- but you still talk about nowadays um, like I'm 30 years old and I still say so you were the year below me in school yeah, right, yeah. yeah it's yeah, funny yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. you still yeah, yeah. have that reference point yeah yeah, yeah. Um, inbred into you but then yeah I guess from year 11 onwards I did a lot more like mountain bike and BMX and that sort of thing um, all the way through sixth form um, and started, I guess, just training in the gym during lunch times and break times and right, stuff like okay. that. And that was it, really. I didn't really have any other main sports at that point. And, just and that kind of gym work is that I don't know what. I'm not really at the time. Yeah. It was literally bicep curls and right, okay. bench press because right, okay. that's the only thing I knew how to do. Right, okay. um, and that's the only thing you care about when you're a teenager, isn't it? Time to fill your sleeves a little bit because that's the one thing that you can see in a mirror. You're talking so, to two cyclists here who like that well, doesn't mean but yeah I'd get there will point. be some people listening who will resonate and they will know exactly what I'm on about yeah, yeah, right. and so yeah and did you have brothers and sisters you have brothers and sisters got one older brother right. who is um, extreme well I wouldn't say extremely different but quite different to me motivationally as well oh, right. different okay. different kind of thing he's more um, I think he got all the creative genes and then I got all of the physical hyperactiveness genes alright oh, okay you so, consider yourself hyperactive Probably at times when I was younger, yeah, definitely. Um, I had a lot of energy. I t- I'd, I'd still say I do have a fair bit of energy uh, nowadays. But yeah, as a kid, I was not one for sitting still. Yeah, moving around. Mm. Yeah. And then you mentioned there, just when you were younger, you were bigger. Yeah. Is that something that was, uh, as, a, as a youngster, was a problem for you at school or anything like that? You- yeah, I think... I think everybody goes through the bullying phase and being bullied phase and all that sort of thing. It definitely was a makes you a target, doesn't it? It's an easy target to pick yeah, on yeah. the you know the fat kid, and um, I think it literally all came from. It was it's funny this because you know you still remember it, but I fell off my bike once when I was a kid, and um, my brother rode over my leg, and as he rode over my leg, my pedal was down. His pedal was down, and so it ripped like a chunk out of the back of my leg. So it was like the first time I'd ever had anything somewhat serious happen to me. So I had like stitches in the back of my leg, all that sort of thing. And then because of that, I couldn't really run or walk for like, I don't know, like six weeks or something like that. And that was when 
I started playing computer games because I couldn't go outside as much and all that sort of thing. And then that kind of fed into like, ah, this is actually pretty fun. And then, and that was it. And then I liked, I found out I liked sweets. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's what happens when you're a kid. Yeah. And then, yeah, before you know it, it's like four years later, you're fat and you haven't really done much exercise. Yeah, bad, bad habits, isn't it? Yeah. And do you think when you think about the gym, I think I can think about a situation for myself, but when you go to the gym, start going to the gym, do you think that's you trying to, I suppose, inevitably, I can't speak for you, but self-esteem starts to go out the window a little bit. You, certainly at that age, you're probably not aware of even what that is. But then do you think the gym was to try and counteract that? Yeah, 100%. I had... um and again, it is weird what you remember, but I there was a few kind of defining moments um, as a as a kid that I can remember. And as I said, because you get you get bullied because you're an easy target, that sort of thing. I didn't make it easy for myself by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't have like haircuts very much, so I had like hair down at my shoulders. Um, I I had like like wore like pink studded belts, and I was a bit of like or not not like. Can we have some of those photos for the. Oh, no, I'm sure you can find some if you look back far enough on Facebook or something, but like. A um, bit more of what was considered like a trog or something like that. Okay. Somebody who listens to like heavy metal and all that sort of thing. And um, so that made me a bit of a target. So yeah, fair enough. That's how it is. But then I remember I, I also used to, I went through a bit of a time uh, journaling through that kind of whole period of my life. I used to journal just a little bit, just for curious, just for... So write notes of... Yeah, I don't even know why I did it. It was just one of those things I felt like I should do. And um, I wrote down in my diary one day that um, it was just like this whole big page spread. Uh, I was not born to be bullied. And then I closed the book and put it on the shelf and like never wrote in it again. Oh, okay. And then it was like that kind of time I started doing like biceps curls with my school bag, putting my school bag on my back full of books and doing squats and right, just okay. training on that. And uh, I've, I've told a few people this story. Uh, my old school way of training I didn't ever really count reps or sets or anything like that because I didn't know what a rep or a set was. But I'd try to do press-ups for like an entire song on like some albums that I bought or whatever. So Will Enium's 2000 or whatever it was, was it the oh, 2000 album or whatever it, uh, I'd try and do press-ups and sit-ups for like however many songs into right. the entire, okay. through the entire album and stuff like that. And um, yeah, the and then that was it. And then, you know, you get a little bit of success, which at the time of being like 15, 16 year old is, um, one of the girls in school goes like, oh, you, you know, our arms have grown. And it's like, okay, I can yeah. see where this is going. This yeah, is working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that just gives you motivation. And then I try to start training in the school gym with one or two people. Um, and then that was it. And the goal there was, I suppose, ultimately there's no sporting goal other than looking no. and helping. I suppose subconsciously, I guess, also that self-esteem, I think, isn't it? I think the whole the the purely the goal at that point was self-esteem to make yourself feel better and chicks yeah like Uh, you know when you're a 16 year old kid that is a a large motivation isn't it so yeah 100 percent yeah it's been it's been many many an evening at 16 crying that the girls weren't interested (laughs) in fairness i'm not sure it really changed anyway enough enough about me (laughs) so so you say you went out to uni then yeah, yeah. So, A levels, I assume. Which school? Sorry, you said QE2 and Ramsey. Yeah. Which one did you say you ended up in? Q2. Right, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah so I did, um, I went to sixth form in QE2, and Kieran Tastig came in to the school to offer a um, Duke of Edinburgh basically training. Well, it, was, it wasn't labeled as Duke of Edinburgh training, but as a part of it, you could do Duke of Edinburgh. It was basically a, a three week expedition to Vancouver Island where we do some kayaking, mountain walking, and some kind of, um, what's it called, uh, community service 
And so you could use it to get your gold dew venomous. So I decided, okay, cool, I'll do that. Um, because it sounded like a good idea. Um, I didn't really know how, I didn't know how to see kayak at that time. So kind of went for that. And um, then through that training process, it was the final year of uh, sixth form when we went to Vancouver that summer. And then he offered basically everybody in the group a job and everybody else kind of ummed and awed about whether they wanted to do it or not. And I was just like, yeah, I'll do that. So I took a year out and worked for him full time and then went to uni after that. And what were you doing in that role day to day? So in a nutshell, his business was based around delivering experiences, adventurous experiences, as the name, little name drop there, so, um, there to for sea kayaking and co-steering at the time and still pretty much mostly now. And um, so I was trained up as a kayak coach, trained up as a co-steering um, leader and that sort of thing. And then going through the sea kayaking leadership roles and that sort of stuff. Um, I think that was a big, that was probably, I know, you know, talking about defining moments and all that sort of thing, taking that year out and working um, full time for in that role was probably one of the biggest um, emotional, emotionally intelligent developments of my, of my kind of that sort of period in my life, trying to understand that speaking to people, you can't just speak to everybody in the same way. You have to change how you speak to certain people. Um, you have to change how you speak to adults a group of males versus a group of females. And that was a big development point throughout that year. Um, how, how come the, you straight away said yes? Um, because rather I, than you said everyone else, I'm going to know and your mindset was, I'm just going to go do that. Because honestly, I was probably a bit hesitant about uni. Um, I, I'm a July baby. So I've always, that's another thing with the whole self-esteem in school situation you're one of the younger ones in the year and you always feel like you have you're a bit of a disadvantage um i don't know why i don't know why that is but that i think i thought okay i'm a bit young to be going to uni so i thought there was a there was a bit of reservation thinking okay i'm going to be like 19 going to uni and everybody else is going to be 18 that's going to be weird but then you get there and you realize it really doesn't matter at all. Yeah, I was going to say, I think for me, uh, flying over to Vancouver and spending a year doing that sounds a bit more daunting than uh, going yeah. across the, to Liverpool or something and partying for, for you know, starting <laughs> yeah. that se- season. Yeah, it's true. But um, so, yeah, I think that was my, that was the main reason, really. And then obviously the, the actual job role sounded cool as well. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was, you know, you spend five days a week um, doing adventurous things which is ace. And, you know, within that role, there's loads of other stuff that we did. So um, at that time, we were doing landscaping one or two days a week as well, just because it was to help to money the money through the winter season, because not many people do outdoor activities through the winter. Um, apart from the occasional stag group that want to go out in January when it's absolutely freezing, but that's, you know, that's, that's how it is. Um, and other things because where where the adventurous experiences is it's on a really cool place in patrick called balabury which is um they have apple orchards around there so you end up you know as a job role yes you are working for adventurous experiences but you're helping the family out as well and picking apples yeah. and doing like mini bits of farming based work it's and, on the patrick road aren't they yeah yeah so yeah i know the place from biking down yeah on the, well Depending on which direction you're going in, but yeah, yeah, you see the kayaks actually, the fluorescent kayaks in the yeah in the trees there. That's it. And yeah. so yeah, so by doing one 
job role, you end up, I ended up having a lot of skills basically from that one year of experience. So were you tripping in at Vancouver, taking groups out there? or No, sorry. So, so Vancouver was only a three-week expedition okay. in summer. And that's where you met them. Okay. No, so that was where... So Karen came into the school. Sorry, I should have been clear. Karen came into the school during the first year of the sixth form and said, we're going to train people up. And he's obviously on the island. We're going to train people up for a year and then we're going to go do a three-week expedition in Vancouver All right, and okay. then obviously come back. Yeah. And then it was when he came back that he was... well. Before we went, he offered everybody a job and I said yes. Yeah. And so did the expedition and then came back and then instead of going to uni, just started working for him instead. Is it still around? Adventures Experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's still going. Um, it's really, really busy nowadays as well. It's um, We've developed, I say we, because I still work for him um, on and off. Um, it it's works in a nice situation now. It's like when, we're, when he needs help and I am free, I assist. Right. Um, and so we still do things um, like through the winter, we do winter pool development courses. So for teaching a junior development group of kayakers that do four four-week blocks in Peel Swimming Pool to learn the skills of kayaking and then learn water confidence and all that side of things. Um, we still do those. And so I've been doing, well, we have been doing them for the past four years, I think now. Um Assume we've got a website we can point people to. Yeah, adventuresexperiences.com. It's oh, okay. um, it's very, very easy and very simple. We'll uh, add that to our footnotes as well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and, and, and like I said, like Might I said, corporate last time, things as well, I guess people... They do, do bits that, they do, know. yeah. There is um, there is many, many things I could say, um, all positive about the whole company, but they are yeah, really, really cool people to work for yeah. and really cool people to work with. And um, like I said last time, Kieran would... Or Karen, sorry... Karen Kieran, he doesn't really mind, but it is technically Karen. Um, would be a really cool person to speak to. Yeah. From the from the um, risk from the risk of life perspective, um, you know, when you're in an outdoor based environment, you learn what is a perceived risk and what is a real risk, and the di- and the major difference between the two. So, what we do with um, experiences and adventures experiences is. We give people a subtle taste of what a perceived risk feels like without actually putting in them any real danger. Okay. So we are very in control of the situation, but depending on the group, certain levels of experienced risk makes them realize, um, I guess I guess it's a really good way to put people on the outer limit of where they feel comfortable, which is a really good point to begin learning. Yeah. And so that's... Another kind of important point that we that I learned anyway whilst working for him. What what example would you give there then that you typically do? So sea kayaking, um, people who have not been in a sea kayak very much before, if you take them 100 meters away from, or even 50 meters or 10 meters away from the shoreline, and there's a little bit of bump in the water, just like a subtle oh, little crying. bit, it's crying, it's yeah. it's it can be quite scary for a lot of people because. Um, again it's just that perceived risk it's like i have not got my feet on land here and then people are really comfortable sitting in their boat and they you know they're they're talking the talk and seem really relaxed and they're like if you fall out you know you just you get a bit wet and we'll put you back in their boat and like yeah yeah, i'm fine like playing the cool card and people fall in all the time not all the time actually a lot less than they used to and um when a lot of people especially the people who are the kind of overly confident ones tend to 
not seem as calm when they come when they bring their head out of the water again and they realize they can't touch the ground and then they all of a sudden realize they are actually 10 meters away from the shore and yeah they have a buoyancy aid on so they're not gonna you know like nothing bad's gonna happen and um just the ability to follow very simple instructions like keep a hold of your boat and your paddle uh you'll forget how to do that and they literally swim straight towards you like a beeline then try and tip you in because they're panicking and it's that which is really interesting. And when you give them time to reflect on that, it is a really um, eye-opening experience for a lot of people. So that is a really cool situation within the outdoor environment. Um, it gives you a somewhat different perspective on things, yeah, which yeah. is quite important, yeah. I think. Interesting. So then you uh, wander off to uni. Where did you go to uni? Yeah. Uh, Bangor, uh, North Wales. Okay. What and, did you um, study? Sports science with outdoor activities. And so... Was um, that based off your experience from last year or was that already in your mind? It was kind of in my mind. So when Kieran came... Karen, Kieran, Karen, came to school, uh, it was the first year of A-levels. So it was plenty of time to kind of have... It was plenty of time to decide what I wanted to do. I knew I enjoyed sport at that point from the science side of things. So I was doing GCSEPE. Um, and then AS level P and then A level P and I really enjoyed the physiology side of things. I wasn't I wasn't very good at the I think it was history of sport was one of the other modules and I wasn't good at writing. So psychology of sport wasn't great because it required essay style questions, biology style answers where it was like, what is this? I go, yeah, know what that is. Um, I really liked that physiology side of PE and the mechanics side of things and bones and joints and muscles, all that sort of stuff. And then um, with the outdoor activities side of things, there was only one or two unis that had potential for a bolt on. And then Bangor University was a really cool place to go because it's like in North Wales, you have access to amazing uh, facilities from an outdoor uh, activities perspective. And Kieran did a lot of training, excuse me, uh, a lot of training when he was learning to sea kayak and that sort of thing in North Wales and Anglesey. And so it just seemed like a logical choice. Yeah, a lot of outdoor. Yeah, and it was ace. And it was basically a sports science degree, but on Wednesdays, instead of doing, uh, instead of having one of the other lectures or having a day where you played team sport, we went out either into the mountains or into the rivers or into the ocean. And we just alternated wet, dry, and that was it. So it was ace. Yeah. It was really, really good. Um, what would be the highlight looking back at those I presume it's a three year course is it yeah. what kind of the highlights you pick out of there of what, what it taught you I don't really know to be honest like I, I've been asked that before like with because um, I've done work in schools in the past and that sort of thing and people always ask me like, what's the can you describe what is the beneficial thing about going to university and it's I don't there is no one thing it's just you amalgamate all of your life experience into like a three year period that allows you to test everything you currently know. And then you realize how little you know, and then it allows you to expand that situation to learn real life scenarios, if that makes sense. Cause you, you know, when you're living on your own, I presume, did you go to you? Yeah. 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 Have you been to you? I didn't, as well? no, I didn't no, go. No. Too dumb. It's, um, oh, well, I was borderline too dumb as well. I was on the cusp. And, um, so it just allows you to, truly experiment with this sounds really deep and cheesy but with who you are you know what i mean you you resonate with people that you like and you're it's your first kind of time where you're like i don't actually have to hang out with you interesting i 
don't want to spend any time with you, so I don't have to, this is cool. And there's like 200 people in a lecture or whatever, so you can just go, okay, I like these five people out of these 200, I'm just gonna stick with them. Um, Do you think that's, like you're talking here at the age of 19, 20, and I probably only, sounds bad now, of people I've known in the past that now you don't wanna hang around with, or you don't hang around with, but I've only really probably learned that in the last five years or so that you, know, you don't, you know, if people are negative, that's the right word, or just aren't mm. in your space, then, you know, don't hang around with them. So I, I think that's quite enlightening that at quite a young age, you're quite conscious of going, I need to surround myself with people that are, you know, because people, you, you hear it so often, oh, that, that the kid would be all right, but he just hangs around with the wrong people. Yeah. You hear that so often. Yeah. So I think a lot of people don't know that, yeah, you know what, maybe they're not your mates after all, if they're not providing productive I think input into your life. It just takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, individual interactions to make you realize like oh these are actual like these aren't good people i'm hanging around but, with but that's oh. quite quite a short space of time because i personally i think often you end up people will hang around especially if you've got low self-esteem you just kind of hang around with anyone you can hang around with mm. so from a short space of time where you've perhaps got low self-esteem and then to, to a point in a short space of time where you go these guys i'm not saying they're douchebags but these people i don't want to hang around with screw them i'm going elsewhere that's almost to me the opposite of you know, to have esteem to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to move on. Yeah, it's um, that must be, I guess, in part of you. Again, I think something I learned a lot later in life that I wish again I'd known a lot earlier in life. I think, like with with the uni side of things, you are you get thrown into the mix with everybody in halls in first year, so you you're forced to be living with people who you may or may not get on with, and that for me, um, I had some rare people on my corridor. Um, so one person slept with a knife under his pillow, which again was not ideal. He got kicked out of uni, funnily enough. Um, the, other, the other person, I don't like talking down about people, but this story, I have told so many people this story because it's absolutely fantastic. First person I ever met at university, um, I went into the kitchen. She was just there, introduced myself. I was putting one or two things in uh, and she had, she was trying to cook toast. And so she had, she was trying to cook three pieces of toast to be specific but the toaster only had two toasters in. So where would you logically put the third piece? Well, uh, you wanted three bits of toast and you've got a two yeah, space yeah. toaster. You either be patient and do two <laughs> and then a one, yeah. or you do one on the grill or something like yeah, that. Yeah. She put the third piece in the microwave. Um, wow. And and I was like, so what are, you, what are you doing? She was like, oh yeah, my toaster at home has a four slices. So I just wanted a third bit. So I got the other one in the microwave. And I, I walked out and I was thinking, oh, what have I done? <laughs> what am I doing here? But then there was a Wild few other, building goes on fire. Yeah, yeah. There was a few other people in in, in my um, in my little section that were that were cool, and because of situations like that, you pick who you're going to live with in second year very carefully. Mm-hmm. You make a lot of mistakes with who you think you have picked carefully, and then your third year is actually like it's perfect. You've got like a really good vibe of people that you live with. It's ace and you're, you, you kind of more truly become your true person, your true self because you don't have to hide from anyone because the people who you resonate with are living with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that is a, is a big learning curve as well. So you weren't living with her in year three. Is that what you're telling us? I wasn't living with who, sorry? The toast lady. No, 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 not three toast. No, no, no. no, no three toast. <laughs> that nickname through school. Three yeah, toast. No, pretty much. <laughs> so when uni finished, <clears throat> Come back to the island. Yeah, is that did, always um, the plan? Yeah, uh, I did another year with Karen again because I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go. 
um, there was there's a few options from a sports science degree that you can go down. You can either you can go down any of the more traditional sports science based routes and do um, experience as a physiologist or a psychologist or a nutritionist, and you know down those more typical routes or a biomechanist. But then most of those at the time required a master's level education, and I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do a master's degree because. Um, again, I'd been told kind of my whole life up until that point that I wasn't very clever because of the grades I've been getting and all that sort of thing. And I'd never got an English GCSE and you always have that reservation of, am I going to get accepted if I apply? So it kind of makes you hesitate. And so I thought, well, the, the year out I took previously was good, so I'll do it again. And it's a nice, safe sort of bet, realistically. So worked with Karen again for another year. Whilst doing that one, um, or that year, I had a, a really good experience with, so the Duke of Edinburgh expedition that I led, that I was on to Vancouver for three weeks, I had the opportunity to lead a group to Vancouver as the as the leader with one other um, assistant leader, Becca. Um, and that was really cool because it was my first experience of long-term athlete or student development and where you've seen people go from not knowing a lot to being able to you know survive for three weeks with you yes there but they're making a lot of decisions you put them you make them make a lot of the decisions on navigation on where we go what we do and um, food provisions that sort of thing and so that was really really cool um i'd say that was definitely a highlight of um of working for Kieran, basically, yeah, having that opportunity to do that. And how how did you find that? Was that the first kind of experience you've had of being leader for? Yeah, for a real real situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because you mentally prepare for all those sorts of situations, and you think you're prepared, and then it all of a sudden appears that you know you're you're at say you're at Vancouver Airport, and you're like, okay, I'm actually at Vancouver Airport now with six students and an assistant leader. And I am like solely responsible for getting these six 18 year olds back. Um, and so every single little, me and Becca were pretty funny because every single little uh, milestone was like a major achievement. So we got from the airport to the bus station and it was like high five with me and Becca. And then we got from the bus station to the ferry port from Vancouver to get to Vancouver Island. And it was like, again, another major milestone. And then we had to, as mad as it sounds, we had to wild camp in... Um, basically at the the where we got off of the ferry so we just to, there was no campsite so we just had to find somewhere so we found like a local it's not bears around put, no not, well not there um not in the main sort of city areas there oh, occasionally right, okay. wander in but um so we just found like a little park and camped there for the night and again woke up in the morning and we were like okay success there's that's, still eight of them here that's one yeah. like wild <laughs> camp done and we're, we're still here um and then we had to get a uh, coach to the north of the island again and it was like okay we've made it to the kayaking right. place right we're here and it was that was that kind of cool situation but then you actually get out on the water and you have your first wild wild camp where you are actually like a day's kayak away from people and you you, you have those moments where you sit there and you think holy yeah. shit I'm actually responsible for these people um, so that was really cool really really um, humbling experience to understand what real stress feels like yeah. um and i presume on the on the front of that you obviously to the students it's about looking and remaining calm isn't it yeah uh, hugely because you regardless of what you feel you can't really show it i think however in hindsight and everybody who was on that expedition would agree 
um, in my attempts to be reserved the whole time, I probably just came across as really grumpy all day, every day. Uh, Maybe I was really grumpy all day, every day, but that was the kind of persona I took to adopt because that was an easy thing for me to maintain regardless of whether I was hungry, tired, happy, yeah, all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, that, yeah. That leadership, is that, where, where do you think that comes from? Because obviously that's a leadership quality and that's not, you know, not everyone can do that. I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think you are given opportunities to see whether you are willing to try at things and you either sink or swim. And so in all of the opportunities that I had working for Karen and all of the opportunities during the Duke of Edinburgh training, all of the opportunities in school when, you know, people ask, can they come to the gym with you? Just, you know, things like that. You're all you're always an opportunity of either saying yes or no. And so I think in the process of deciding that I am no longer going to be bullied, which was way back, yeah. that was a bit of a catalyst in making decisions to say, okay, I am going to, I think it actually translates more clearly to, I'm going to make decisions that positively benefit me and not run from issues and not hide away from, you know, um, hide away from adversity as, again, as cheesy as all this sounds. It's one of them. It is funny how the easiest way to word things that are positively beneficial in your life tend to come off as like cliches or cheesy statements, but it is annoyingly true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, again, so many podcasts, I keep going back to Rich Sale and talking about sort of how you're molded when you're younger and how, how it seems to obviously impact who yeah. people are massively. And often it's, it's again, seen as, a, I wouldn't say a negative thing, but if something negative is going on when you're younger, the impact I'm not saying it's always, but often when you talk about it later in life, it's it's therefore had a negative impact. But in many ways, that negativity of that bullying, if that's the right term, maybe if you phrase it better than that, but it's, it's had a positive impact on who you are, yeah. what you do, how you carry yourself out. Yeah, and um, I, think, I think you're right in the sense that when you are very young, you're um, much, easy, much more easily influenced in how you perceive things. And so, again, this is kind of like jumping back and forth, but I, when I was in, um, when I came back from my, oh, sorry, a bit far in advance, but after my master's, I did a postgraduate diploma in uh, with the Institute of Neurophysiopsychology, which is basically the, it's how your perception of the world around you um, affects your um, the psychology and how that has an impact on your physiology so how you physically change from your psychological perception of your yeah your perception basically and um that was mainly the education of that was mainly based around um one to two years of life development and that was a big interest of mine through i guess through my master's degree and that sort of thing just like how children develop because you go to some academy groups and there was these 16 year old kids and some of them were absolutely fantastic athletes and you can tell straight away like okay you're actually going to be a really good athlete you move really well you've got a good head on your shoulders then you've got another 16 year old kid who is still within um like the same sort of potential sporting category of ability but they move terribly they are grumpy they have just bad posture they like literally have terrible diet and you know you can just see that 
they aren't going in the right direction. And it, it, it baffles me how different people can be at that age. And so when I came back from my master's, when I was doing work in primary schools, that was one of the things I was like, how, how far back does this sort of thing develop? And then with primary school work, it was uh, apparent that, you know, when you have two four-year-old kids and they're in reception age in school, they're drastically different already. And so the first two years of life tend to, to seem to have this absolutely massive developmental um, perspective. or the, It's a massive time where they are almost set on the path of development yeah. on in one direction or another. So I want to plow into that. Mm. Maybe just come back to it in a moment. Yeah, just yeah, that's my brain and it goes was in a bit one, of a, one order. <laughs> slightly jump forward, but you mentioned about the tangent. Masters there. So yeah. you obviously came back, did a, did a year with... Karen. Yeah, the outdoor, Kieran, Karen, and Karen. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was after that? You mentioned, did is that when you looked at doing a master's? Yeah, so it was when I did that, that, when I did that, that, when I was finishing my undergrad, I did a an internship, just a one-week internship in Manchester with a guy called Nick Jones at DNA Sports Performance. Um, Excuse me. And... That was like my first introduction to what strength and conditioning was. I didn't know what strength and conditioning was at the time. And you've been doing gym while you've been at uni. And yeah. Like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so I I did a sport called, I got heavily involved with kayaking-based sports and was on the uni team for a sport called canoe polo, which is basically water polo, but in kayaks. Okay. So I'm sure I even know what water polo is, not in kayaks. It's, it's a really, really cool sport. It sounds really ch- like stupid, but it's actually ace. So you've got like a, I don't know, have you ever seen like slalom kayaks before? Yeah, you've seen them in Olympics. Yeah. They're, That's the one time of year when you tend to see Yeah, exactly. When you actually look at it. When you see them. They're like low profile boats, basically. So they, they are kind of close to the water's edge. They don't sit very high out of the water. And they've got a bumper on the front and a bumper on the back. And um, you wear buoyancy with loads of padding into it. And you wear a helmet with a face guard. Feisty. And you wear you have a paddle that's a little bit blunted on the edges, and there's a water polo ball in the middle of the pitch, and wow. the goal is like it's two meters, I think. It's two meters off the ground, and it's a meter by a meter square, and five people versus five people. And you whack so, it with the paddle, the ball. Yeah, you can. It's more efficient to use your hand, but um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you're mainly based around picking it up with your hand, and you can't paddle with the ball, so you have to yes. throw it in front of you and then paddle towards it. Okay. Um, but it's like full contact, so if you have the ball in your hand and there's an uh, opponent next to you they can push you in or really? yeah, yeah. what so, about uh, <laughs> what's the rule on arms smacking people with so that would be a foul yeah, yeah. I know I know Whacking you shouldn't do it but is it like yeah yeah you, you, you're technically not allowed to do that but you do get some sneaky digs in every now and then so you can knock the ball out of their hand with your hand yes just not whack them with the paddle yeah yeah basically yeah, unless you get too annoyed it's an ace sport and uh, I was when I went to uni there was so they, when I went to uni, it was the first year that the year before they got bronze in books, like the university championships. And that was like massive because the year before they came like 35th or something, something crazy. And so the, the team that were there, um, they were like super motivated to try and do better than third. And so I kind of got involved with that. Uh, that was a really cool environment to be in. And then basically for three, for two years in a row, we got third. So it was a third bronze medal bronze medal and then final year we got a gold medal boom so it was and that was another really interesting point from the strength and conditioning side because it was at that kind of end of uni time i started to understand what strength and conditioning was as opposed to what 
like personal training is and what the physiologist really is and all that sort of side of things. Um, and so the the whole first team for Canoe Polo were on like strict training programs oh, okay. and like nutrition and we did like training camps and all that sort of stuff. And it was that that made me realize like, holy shit, like you actually can make a big difference in your physique, in your performance ability, in your ability to, you know, the lactate threshold side of things, being able to maintain performance throughout. Uh, so polo matches at uni standard, I think it was six minute halves or something like that. So it's like a 12 minute match. It's not very long at all, but you're sprinting full pelt for 12 minutes. Um, and that side of things really interesting. And so that was one of the first times that made me realize you can actually make a very significant difference in your performance by the way that you train and all that sort of thing. So that was really interesting. And I think that was one of the main kind of like reasons why I went down the strength and conditioning route. Right, in the Manchester. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that was uh, just a week internship in Manchester uh, at the end of my undergraduate degree. And then he was doing... Uh, longer internships for a year but it was kind of more like a thing that you would do alongside a job or alongside something else so I didn't want to do that while I was living back on the Isle of Man so when I went to uni in Chester to do my master's degree in sports science strength and conditioning I did that internship alongside it all right okay and how long was the master's in Chester just a year all right okay yeah so it was one of those um it was a year but there's only two lectures a week all right, so okay. it was Tuesday morning and Wednesday afternoon, and that was it. Right, so the rest okay. of the week I was free. Right. And so I was a bit of a hermit in my master's degree, to be honest. I uh, just went full pasty into gym training. Full and, pasty. Yeah, it's a bit I've not come that, across that too. Well, no. I've not come across that one, yeah. And I'm very, you know, Max Manx, full oh pasty. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I say that quite a lot. Um, yeah, so yeah went full pasty into training and into our episode name <laughs> <laughs> into um just learning about strength and conditioning because at that time it was it was it was just fascinating to me and um there was a gym just down the road i got i was lucky enough to get a job in um so i was working in the gym one or two days a week i was at an internship in manchester one day a week two days of lectures, and then I did another internship with um, the North Wales Welsh Rugby Union Academy uh, in Colwyn Bay with the rugby team, RGC 1404, I think. And um, and that was really cool. So I was there three days a week. So basically, I was only doing two days a week lectures, but I was pretty much full-time just doing stuff yeah, to right. do with strength and conditioning. So I effectively fully what I consider fully immersed myself in the opportunities Subject. that were available yeah. to me yeah. in Chester. So yeah. yeah, that was a big, big like turning point for me from how much you can actually learn in a year. My education like skyrocketed and I realized I'm not actually unintelligent. I just haven't been putting any effort in up until now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, Again, that was a, a major turning point for me. I do remember listening to Joe Rogan on one of his podcasts and he talked about a teacher that really had an effect on his life where he, school, he was never interested in stuff. And then the, in the, in one of the classes, the, the 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 teacher talked about they were talking about earthquakes or some whatever the subject matter was, and he piped up to disagree with the teacher, and he had a different view of the teacher. And after after the class, the teacher pulled him to one side and said, "Look, you can't undermine me in class. Appreciate you've got a valid point, but I had to kind of tell you to shut up because this is based on my research. But if you've got more information, great." let me go away and explore it. Come to me after the class. I'll go away and look at it and, and then correct the class. And the next thing, you just can't undermine me in the class. But he said, most importantly, 
you've I've teached you for X number of years now, and you just you've never engaged in anything, uh, and perhaps perceived as being just not interested in school. Where it wasn't that clearly, it's just the subject matter or mm. the the environment needs to be right to engage that engage the brain for the one of a better term. Yeah, uh, and that's I guess seems the case if it's yeah 100%. something you're passionate about or, or interested it. in. I had no idea I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach or own a gym or anything like that. I just followed something I found interesting and just found out how deep the hole or the rabbit hole went of what is interesting Mm -hmm. and then kind of ignored the points that weren't interesting within the subject and followed the more interesting bits. And like, I think, I don't know why you get interested in certain things. Maybe it is a simple, you could look at it very simply in the sense that training physical training is what made me change from being a bullied kid to not being a bullied kid. Uh, And maybe that was all it took. And it was just an underlying thing of finding out more information to do that more. Maybe it's as simple as that. Or maybe it's more complicated. I don't know. But there's a, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it could have been a thousand different paths you take when you're bullied of coming out more isolated, creating not a worse situation, but being, taken negatives mm. from that situation rather yeah very interesting yeah 100% so you come back from Chester to the island and is that when you start working in the schools that you would, you, would, you mentioned yeah. there yeah so um, I wasn't I wasn't qualified really as a strength and conditioning coach I had master's degree education but the, I didn't have uh, UKSCA which is like I guess the, the UK's kind of standard of what strength and conditioning coach should have and um that was my assessment i think was in march or something like that and i came back from uni in september so it was no october so it was a few months away basically so i wasn't fully qualified so i decided okay i can't charge people for any service so i'll just do what i can for free and get and get as big of a reach as possible and i had a little eureka moment thinking well, everybody who is an athlete on the Isle of Man now is probably working with a coach, but all of the future athletes of 10 years away are going to be in school now. So I thought, okay, I'll just go into schools and offer free work for them. And then they'll know me. My simplistic logic was, then they'll know me. When they become an athlete, they'll come and work with me as an adult. Um, that was the simple theory. So went to literally just put myself forward, put my neck on the chopping block and went to the secondary schools like PE teachers meeting and said, I will work for free doing extracurricular training um, on strength and conditioning, physiology, blah, 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 that sort of thing. Um, Who's interested in like every single school put their hand up, so it was quite funny. Um, Because obviously it means that they have other things to offer the students, it's free work for them, it's easy, makes the students do something. It's a good Um, approach again, I think, People might come back and go, I charge you this service, but if you, yeah, like you say, just the exact I was a 23 year old kid who's come back from university thinking he knows everything. So it's one of them. And in hindsight, I've had people who, I've had people approach me who have come from university in the exact same situation and they think, well, you know, I'm qualified now, so I know everything. And it's like, you're not even scratching the surface. And so, again that was a, probably a good decision for me to do and then I did the same thing with primary schools I just I think I just spam emailed every single primary school and then anyone who um, replied I just rang them straight away and said okay I'll do some free sessions for your age students kids whatever age you want throw them at me and um, the 
secondary because I had some coaching qualifications from kayaking. So I was technically covered by insurance and, you know, CRB checks and all that sort of thing. So it was fine. Um, and initially I got some older students like, you know, year three, four, five. And then there was this one, uh, I, I think it was actually Kurt Michael Primary School. I got my first reception age class and it was like a whole different ball game. I'd never coached that many young students ever in my life. And um, yeah, that was mad. Chaos, absolute chaos. The How literal children are was impressive. It was like, so everybody just uh, come to the middle of the room and then they all start fighting over the very middle point of the room. And so there's this little circle in the middle of the room. They're literally like attacking each other. Like, no, that's my area. And so, you know, that again, you have to change your approach. And so you had to learn pretty quick about what is right and what is not appropriate and not correct language. And then that was, again, where you learn how different two four-year-olds can possibly be. And some four-year-olds understand a sentence and they can follow an instruction and they can link things together. And some four-year-olds are basically two-year-olds in a four-year-old's body. Right. And it's just purely down to experience and how they have been exposed to experiences and the way their parents have dealt with it. So you mentioned then, to go back to the conversation earlier, that, that obviously fascinated you to go and explore mm. and understand why those differences are. Mm. So, sorry, you mentioned earlier you went then and studied to study that side of it. Yeah, I got a book. What's the name of it called? That Institute of Neurophysiopsychology. Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it does. It's just it's very easy to see. And um, that's actually what the first week of the course was, just to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> um, I'd need about three weeks, I think. <laughs> the, there was a book, uh, I think it was called ABCs of Learning, and it was by this woman, Sally Goodard, I think that's how you pronounce her name. And, uh, and she has this institute, she runs it. And so I... Where? It's in Chester again. Okay. So it was, again, it was all these things that were quite interesting, how they all seemed to kind of line up quite nicely. Uh, and so that was a year course, but it was on, it was four like week long blocks with stuff to do in between. Uh, and it was basically working with uh, or attempting to, or learning to how to work with dyslexic, dyspraxic, and mildly autistic children. And the What's theory dyspraxic? is- dyspraxic? Sorry, I've not come across that too. Uh, dyspraxia is effectively dyslexia of the body. So oh, okay. instead of being, you know, dyslexic would be your hmm. um, your understanding of words and uh, language. Your dyspraxic is your, like a kind of misunderstanding of how to move correctly. So difficulties with fine motor control, catching a ball, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and then some ADHD kids and ADD kids. And um, that was, uh, where was I going with that? What were we saying before that? Just, uh, we talked, obviously, starting that course, you mentioned about doing it in block weeks. Mm. And just how, how, I suppose, you got onto that subject and how, how you what you learned through the year being there. Yeah, and um, it was that was interesting because it was a learning curve of, Again, there's two different four-year-olds. Some can follow instructions and some, I thought previous to this, some kids won't follow instructions, but it's literally, in some cases, some kids can't follow instructions. They can't understand the sentence that you're providing them with. They can't understand the information that you're presenting to them. And so when you ask somebody to sit still, some children at that age physically can't because um, when you close your eyes, you your brain knows that you are a physical thing in a three-dimensional world and that you can feel the chair underneath you and you know that up is the feeling where there is no pressure and down is the feeling of where there is pressure. You know, simple things like that that we learn as we develop as as children and as adults and so on. 
and then we get more complicated versions of that. And some kids, um, through lack of physical development, so physical opportunities of playing in, on the ground, crawling as a child, all that sort of thing, haven't developed that fully to the, to the understanding that when they close their eyes, there's no reference point. And so they physically don't know what, in some cases, what up, down, left, and right is. And so that was an eye-opening experience to understand what potentially, or how to deal with those sorts of children and um, how to separate them, I guess, as well. And is it, when you say left, right, up, down, is that from a, in the mind, from a movement perspective or, or literally what's up, down, left, and right? Or both. So oh, right, okay. um, the, the understanding of where up, down, left, right is, um, is a combination of the feeling that you have physically on the skin, on the touch, your muscles, what, what they're doing in reaction to gravity uh, or in response to gravity, how the fluid is moving around your ears, the, the things that, and the things that you can see, and all that combination works to make you balanced or unbalanced. Mm. And if you haven't developed that, it's you know you're not going to be able to do very simple tasks. And so when people close, some people close their eyes, they physically don't know where they are in space. And making that subtle difference between my brain is the center of the universe and I am this thing within a universe again is a very different concept that kids need to work out on their own. Right, okay. Slightly uh, lost me. <laughs> My mind's over there now. And it's all really interesting. And so that's yeah. like, again, that's a whole separate topic that is fascinating and really, really interesting. And so looking at that subject matter, is it then to understand that then to go, well, this four-year-old needs some help and development to then try and get them up to speed in those different areas. Yeah, and so that was what I was trying to figure out with doing that postgraduate diploma. It was, can I actually positively affect people here in a one-hour classroom environment one day a week? And the, the subtle answer is no. Um, it requires a lot more effort, a lot more frequent effort to be able to actually make change. And that was another really interesting point, which, again, I'll side digress on later. But... The, the actual institute's basic theory is that we go through certain, almost like dominoes as, as a child, and the, the dominoes get flicked over in some kind of an order that goes from, there's a reflex that stimulates a process. So for example, breath. <clears throat> the, the stimulus of that causes or brings about this other stimulus that is like the next stage in the domino or the next domino to appear. And then as that second domino begins to be fully stimulated, it begins an inhibition of the previous one as it brings about the next domino in the sequence. And so it's this nice little logical development process of how you would go from knowing that I am, or how you would go from I am the center of the universe to I am a thing in a universe and the difference between a ball and an orange and an apple, because they all look like spheres. So they're all kind of the same. But how do you differentiate between those things? It's multiple experiences. Um, and so the theory of the, the INPP, easier way of saying it, um, is that certain stages from in, in utero, so when you're, when you're in the womb to two years old, you go through these logical little physical stepping stones like you have certain reflexes, like a Moro reflex. Um, you have things like something called an asymmetrical tonic neck reflex and a symmetrical neck reflex and these sorts of things. 
There's primitive reflexes. This is a bit, a bit long-winded, but... <laughs> That's why I didn't go with uni. Yeah. Um, there's primitive reflexes and postural reflexes. Basically, the primitive reflexes make you survive for the first two years. And so they're the things that allow you to breathe, make noise when you want food, make noise okay. when you want attention, um, to eat, all that, all that sort of stuff. And then postural reflexes are things that we have every day um, and we use every day. So when you trip over a curb, you put your foot out instinctively. You know that you are a physical being in a three-dimensional world, all those sorts of things. So that's postural reflexes. And some kids, the theory is some kids haven't developed their primitive reflexes, or sorry, they haven't developed some of the postural reflexes. So they still are learning those things. And as a consequence of maybe a lack of experience, they haven't fully inhibited their um, primitive reflexes. So their brain's just a bit confused. So while it's trying to figure out some new complex things like what two plus two is, it's also trying to think, um, how do I look at this teacher whilst holding a pen and listen? You know, that sort of thing. So it's just a bit of a confused brain. And so learning, I guess, is realistically, it's all just a form of integration. It's integrating different bits of information to different bits of information. And the kids who um, are well adept to school life are the ones who typically have all of their or most of their, or the vast majority of their primitive reflexes inhibited and their postural reflexes present. And you can do very simple tests within a classroom environment to kind of get a gauge for that. And that was what was the interesting thing. It's like, oh, there is actually something to this. Yeah, okay. So then you'll see traits and be able to kind of apply where they're on that. Yeah, it's a very, the actual process of the IMPP, I don't practice it anymore um, because you have to be a licentiate and all that sort of thing. Is licentiate, is that the right word? You have to be a license holder, however you want to say it, um, to be practiced with, to practice with them because there's very specific guidelines to what to do, how to work with students. And you always work with a one-to-one basis because you can't really make a huge change with groups of kids, basically. Yeah, because I say, see your first day there where you've gone to the primary school and doing your first session there. Is that something you're thinking about when doing this like you know going to there to just do start strength and conditioning yeah. kind of sessions with them in that sense are you looking at these kids there and thinking going through basically what we've you've just talked about there trying to identify potentially where those skills may may or may not be there the first time i went um i was just trying to figure out how far back do things like poor movement habits appear so at what point, for example, does tight hamstrings start to occur? So, like I said, those two 16-year-old rugby players, some of them are quite flexible, <clears throat> some of them move really well, um, and some of them have such tight hamstrings that they can barely even touch their knees, never mind their toes, and they have terrible posture, and they have more, move badly. And so I was like, okay, so how far back does this go? So that was why I went to primary schools to see, like, okay, basic tasks. Can you stand on one leg? Some kids can, some kids can't. Oh, interesting. Can you okay. touch your toes? Some kids have too tight hamstrings to be able to touch their toes at four years old. And so that was the point that made me think, okay, well, how much further back do I have to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was what led me on to the IMPP and all that sort of side of things. And so that has just been a very useful training experience, I think, to understand that you can see it now. I can see it now in coaching everyday people, in adults, who still have some kind of neurological dysfunction that is causing them to realistically move poorly, making people, you can see people who have a 
a lack of physical understanding of where they are in space and that sort of thing. And that's really interesting to see adults in that situation. So that was why, again, um, because the IMPP was so strict in how they do things, that was why I ended up stop, stopping practice with them. I had some really good results um, with a lot of the students I worked with, and it was it was really, really rewarding work because you work with somebody for a nine-month period, um, basically on a one-to-one -one sort of basis with their parents there, and it literally changes the kid's life. Right. And it is really, really fascinating. But um, yeah, how, do just, how do parents react to that? Well, it's really interesting because the basically it's a bit weird in the first sense you do this massive assessment that takes like two and a half hours and then they basically either get one or two exercises to leave with and go home and that's it and they have to do that exercise every single day for the next eight weeks and they don't hear from you for eight weeks obviously you send them messages and you say how's everything going and that sort of thing and they come back eight weeks later and the assessment that same two-hour assessment you got to do again the the results are wildly different and it is crazy how much things can change when you do something more frequently and that was what i was saying about when you do something every day, it's so much more powerful than doing something once a week. Mm. Yeah. And did you find the people you were working with closely different sports? Um, the testing that you do, how, would you differentiate what you'd be working and looking at with them and what they basically, yeah, would you, would it be different depending on what sports you is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, at that phase, no. Because typically the the kids are like seven to thirteen years old. So a bit of everything. You yeah. Say. So I was meaning as in um, secondary school guys you kind of work with in that in mm -hmm. that sense. Um, yeah. So when we were doing secondary school work, it was we I what I did typically was what I termed physical literacy training, which was just the ability for you to move more efficiently as a human, and then did some minor things in regards to the specific sports that they may or may not go into. Mm -hmm. But it was more of a bit of a, it was more of a broad brush, a stroke, more a broad brush stroke to see where their basic movement capacities were limited. So for example, if you have a terrible squat, we'll go with that as an example, because mm -hmm. most people know what squat is. Um, and you think how many times you actually sit down and stand up on a daily basis if you can just make that a bit more of an efficient position to take load off of your spine and load it to your hips and they're a bit more robust as a joint, um, things like that, then that has a huge carry-on effect. If you change people's perception of themselves and you make them a bit more confident, their posture changes, and that, again, has a huge knock-on effect. Um, things like that, more so than in that initial term, in the initial things in secondary school, I focused on that side of things more than, okay, you're a runner, we're going to make you faster. Mm -hmm. That was... That always comes um, much later on down the line. For, it should almost be a byproduct of what you do. Maybe. It is a byproduct, yeah. yeah, exactly. Because if you can make people's, and this is still what I do today when people come to the gym, it's a case of if you can make people's joints more robust, um, more able to tolerate load, and you can make them more efficient so they can spread the load more efficiently across all of their joints, realistically, their sport and performance basically improves. Um, as train a consequence more, of that, quicker, train more, yeah, knock on the, effect, there's yeah. not as many niggles, not as many issues, um, energy. They're more efficient. They're mechanically more efficient. That sort of thing. And do you find that? I mean, jumping right forward to now, but clients you deal with now are they? I wouldn't say are they. What's the right word? I wouldn't say not interested in it, but they just say, "Tell me what to do, Sam," or, or do they want to understand that 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 detail you talk about there? That there's a combination between the two. I think some people. Um, 
some people, well, actually, that's a lie. A lot of people come to me with the idea of, I want to do this. And so that is fine, but then it's a subtle act between giving them what they think they want and then actually providing them with what they need. So, okay. for example, somebody comes to me and they say, I want to squat 200 kilos. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, How does it feel when you squat your own body weight? And they say, oh, well, my knees hurt, my back's sore, and um, all this sort of thing. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. Um, how often do you go for a walk in your day-to-day -day life? And it's like, well, I don't really do that. And, you know, that sort of thing. It's like, what's your diet like? Oh, it's terrible. And so how do you, how's your sleep? Oh, I don't really sleep very much. It's about four hours a night. And so I'm thinking in my head, okay, <laughs> this it's person wants yeah. to do this, but they are nowhere near the point of being able to do that. Because if you can't make a healthy human, one, you're, you're doing a disservice to that person because what even if you make them successful and they do squat 200 kilos, two years down the line, they're going to be so screwed over that they're going to hate you forever because it's like, oh, Sam Murphy told me to do this. Mm. Um, so yes, initially, I, I'll openly admit, I probably lose a few clients because of that because I say, okay, that's cool, but we need to focus on this now. Mm. Um, and some people will go, well, and I'm not interested in that and they'll go to somebody else and that's fine some people will take it on board and they'll be hesitant and then they will take a bit of it on board and they'll go, okay, I see the logic in this. And then they're the long-term clients you have that are actually the people who do you a good service as well because they promote you. And they say, you know what, Sam Murphy actually provided me with good information and as a consequence of that, my knees don't hurt, all et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah. So when you finish working in the schools, mm. what, what was kind of going on in your life? And what age were you at this stage? About 23. Right, okay. Um, yeah, I think about 22, 23 when I came back from uni. And then a year after for the IMPP stuff, I was about, yeah, so about 24, 25 right, sort of time. Okay. And that was basically when I, when I first came back from uni, I registered as self-employed and started to settle my business for January that year. So it was about six months where I didn't own a business, but I wasn't charging anybody. Um, and then from January, I said, to all the primary schools and all the secondary schools, I said, look, I can continue doing this, um, but I'm gonna have to charge a small fee for it. And that was it. And so that was basically the start of my business. And the vast majority of my business at the beginning was in primary schools or in secondary schools. So they continued to take up on the offer. Yeah. Right? And there was- You'd shown your value, hadn't you? And that's, yeah. again, going into school on day one, saying, I'll do it for nothing, because yeah. maybe a lot of them just on the bare face of it would just go, I can't see the value in this. Mm. So you've spent time showing the value yeah. and therefore. Yeah. And there was a logical drop off, one or two and that sort of thing. And a few schools were like, no, we can't afford that because we need to put money into this. And it's like, yeah, it's fine. Um, a lot of the secondary schools, in fact, all the secondary schools, the way that they went around it was that the parents of some of the students who I had been working with saw value in it. And so the parents paid. And so, you know, there was that sort of thing. And that was basically the starting point of it really. Um, the starting point of a business anyway. Um, Out of interest, does it, does it, uh, Went that impact of naught to two now and that, that that thought process of all these things that you have to do as a parent outside of being a parent yes. for, or traditional parent, does that, I presume you've not got kids now. Nope. Is that something you think, wow, that's some responsibility now when I have a child? Yeah, huge. Yeah, I've got I've got all these other things that I know that I should be aware of making them more, whether it's crawl more, do, mm. do more things to, to bring those skills in an early as early as possible. Yeah, it's a really tricky situation one it's a very difficult situation to talk about because as you said i don't have kids so there is an 
instant thing like anybody who has children has a thousand times more experience than i do on about children because you know they have to live with them 24 7 and you know that's a big responsibility a big thing and a usually on you can't you can't pay for that experience you just have to either you have it or you don't and um so that's a really difficult topic to talk to some parents about because because i am not that experienced in that sense but um it's difficult to say oh they should be crawling more they should be doing this more and all that sort of thing because it's it has to happen naturally as as hard as that is to accept it, it is either going to happen or it is not going to happen based on the parents perceptions of um of life and so i'm listening to an audiobook at the moment um called the neurobiology of we it's really good actually and um, it's basically depending on how, so questionnaires of parents, how they feel they were brought up um, and their perception of life and their values in life and that sort of thing. Um, it seems to be that those values and those perceptions are directly translated to the kids very, very through loads of little subtle remarks and subtle ways that they deal with things and subtle experiences. Um, so the children are, you, you know, you are a, a sum of the two parts of your mum and your dad's experience. And um, the, the way that children do grow up is a consequence of how those parents choose to deal with situations. And so there's things like, um, I, I'm not really qualified to talk about it at all, but it's um, devoidant attachment and different ways that parents approach situations like a baby's crying. How do you deal with that situation? You Do you continue to try to solve the problem and then eventually solve the problem, which is a very healthy situation. Sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's not. Um, and parents who have, this is again, questionnaire-based, research-based, not my knowledge, typically parents who have been slightly neglected or have had a failed attempts of trying to satisfy their needs as a baby tend to make the same mistakes as adults in their children um so i can't remember what the original question no, was no no well <laughs> it's it's fascinating that that general subject because uh Again, I might have said on other podcasts, I certainly say it off to, to Matt. I spent a number of years listening to some old radio station stuff, and it was a sport, it was a, not a sports psychologist, or it was a, uh, addiction medicine specialist, and but and other areas of that genre, should we say. And they talk about, again, those, you know, how you just molded really by your parents, and, and yeah. onwards and onwards, as, as even in the most subtle way that you perhaps don't, don't realize. And, I just find it a really, really fascinating subject. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, I think I think from the original statement, it was a case of how do you deal with things like, you know... I, well, I suppose my original question was, if you had children, yeah. you think about the, the responsibility, and I think about this as someone who's not got kids, of that responsibility of bringing a, bringing a child up, and it, it, it would daunt me. And now with that, almost the empowered knowledge you have of this importance between naught and two to mm. try and develop those skill, those extra skills that, you know, that just feels like, oh my God, I have to bring a child up. It's not any, yeah. what most people consider just a normal child. It's, I've got, I know, I, my knowledge here is a lot more as well. Mm. And therefore I need to bring this into my child's life as well. I think the, it all comes down to the crux of the whole thing is, uh, 
it's all well and good saying, you know, they need to physically do these things and they need to crawl and they need to develop physically. But all of those physical developments come w through life through an emotional attachment to a parent. And so, and again, as cheesy and as, as happy days as this sounds, if you love your child and you do anything, everything for your child to care for them, the physical de development happens. As long as you are emotionally connected and you're emotionally um, emotionally understanding in yourself, you, you will raise children correctly. Because mm -hmm. if you personally understand your own feelings and your partner's feelings, then you're going to have a great understanding of how your children feel. And so that's, I think, what I would probably do if I ever do have kids, if I ever did. Um, would would do that i'd almost try and forget as much of the physical information yeah, yeah. as possible yeah. and just try and love my child as much as yeah, possible yeah, yeah. again it's cheesy seems as no well it seems a reasonable start point doesn't it <laughs> yeah 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 so you're working with starting to work with schools now yeah uh, and how, sort of how does that expand out does do you start getting private clients off the back of that how yeah does that in a nutshell out? yeah um so that time i was doing a few things i was working with secondary schools i was working with primary schools um i was at that point, probably a bit too busy because I worked with too many individual schools and they would like a drive's distance away from each other. So loads of driving around the island um, to get to different schools and that sort of thing. Um, like Douglas and Ramsey and back again and you know, three different times in a day. Um, but at the same time, my sport from my master's degree that I personally got interested in was basically weightlifting and powerlifting. And so weightlifting is the Olympic one, the one that you see in the Olympics with the two lifts of the snatching and the clean and jerk. And then powerlifting is squat, bench press and deadlift. I wasn't really interested in powerlifting as much at this time. It was more um, weightlifting. So during that time, um, I wanted to teach people how to weightlift. And so there was, um, there was and still is a CrossFit gym up in Douglas called CrossFit Isle of Man. And the people there, Dan and Aaron, were kind enough to let me coach out of their facility. And so that process basically led me to assist in the development of one half of their gym for the next, I think three years after that point. And so from developing some weightlifters and powerlifters in that gym and personally training myself as a weightlifter, that was where private clients and people coming to use the gym, people coming to use the facilities was what actually developed the clientele that I have yeah. as as nowadays, basically, and and your your own sporting world around that, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was my first. Were you competing? Yeah, that was my first like real um, personal sport. I think right. because like going back to canoe polo, that was a team sport. So you were a, a part of a team, which is a very different experience to being the one person in the light of you know competing against everybody else. So that was exciting. Um, yeah, I did that and I, I still do that loosely, but my the goals I have set are more based around personal goals rather than um, competition-based goals. Like I don't really have much interest in being X, X uh, position in Britain or right. X position in the Commonwealth or anything like that. It's more personal satisfaction goals. Um, so I did competitions for a while about two or three years. Okay, um, Ireland and UK based. Well, there isn't. There wasn't any weightlifters right. on the Isle of Man realistically, so the the Isle of Man weightlifting team was pretty much me. Right. And, um, <laughs> I the, could got second then if I joined. <laughs> yeah. Ten kilo. And uh, and one of my main uh, long term students, Sean Wild, who recently 
um, was that last year or the year before? I think it was the year before. Won the under twenty, under under nineteens, or was it under twenties? I can't remember the age category. Basically, won the British Championships for his age, um, and so that was a really cool moment. But the it was through the personal development myself and Sean coming along for the ride that was one of the big motivations for doing that because we trying to kind of trained at the same sort of times. Um, we would go to the qualifying competitions at the same time, so it was it was a really cool environment, really cool setup. Um, and then yeah, so I competed for a bit, and now I haven't. I've actually competed in weightlifting or powerlifting for a while for two mm-hmm. probably about two years. So he, was he in powerlifting then? Was he was he weightlifting. weightlifting. So he was snatching okay. clean and jerk. So that's the stuff you see on the Olympics. Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so there is um, still scope for him to progress into the Commonwealth sort of territory and for the, maybe for the next one, but that'll probably be called off with some other mm. global <laughs> virus or something like that, won't it? So, you know, but you know, we keep our eyes on the horizon. What was the reason you stopped doing that? Just business development, realistically, yeah. yeah. You, um, I made a conscious decision thinking, okay, I can improve my physical performance here and as a consequence not have a business in two years or have an impacted business in two years and maybe do quite well as a weightlifter. Um, At the time, I I think the the best competition, I got to the British Championships and I came sixth. Um, And that was the best I ever did. And I was kind of like in the runnings for the last Commonwealth Games. Um, I was two places off. So it's the top 15 countries. So there's one person from each country gets an opportunity and from the top 15 countries go to compete against each other. And so I was number 17. So, you know, that was the point I was thinking, right, what do I do here? Do I really go for it for weightlifting or do I put a bit of time and focus a little bit more on the business side of things? And I just made the logical decision to focus on a bit more business side of things and, you know, still train and still do everything else, but have that as my main focus, I guess. And so that was basically the main reason, really. Um, I still competed a bit in powerlifting because it's not as um, time demanding powerlifting weightlifting you have to be very mobile very fast and very strong so there's a lot of things to kind of deal with to be able to 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 physically develop yourself you have to spend a lot of time with strength and mobility work you have to spend a lot of time with speed work and a lot of time um waiting in between reps realistically because you're trying to be as fast as humanly possible um for like less than a second to do that, you have to wait like two or three minutes to be able to do that. So you, you have 10 reps to do and it takes you 40 minutes. Right. So okay. the, the actual training time itself is very long mm-hmm. and very time consuming. So and Is that one of the key techniques for that then? It's it's speed of getting the bar up? 100%. It's, um, it's more so the, the bar only has to get to a certain height and then you have to be really fast to get underneath it. Oh, okay. So it's it's more a case of, yes, weightlifters are phenomenally strong, but they're outrageously fast, and that's the main difference. Powerlifters are phenomenally strong, but typically quite slow. Mm. So um, because it doesn't matter how fast the bar goes, they could, you know, you, you from a deadlift point, for example, it can take four or five seconds to get from the ground to the top. It's not yeah. quick. Yeah. Weightlifting, um, from the time the bar is on the ground to at the point where it's at, something called triple extension where it's at the point where you start to pop underneath it yeah. is, is way less than a second. It's like less than half a second. And the point that you've gone from that highest point to get underneath it is like 0.2 of a second. So it's, it's really, really fast movements. Um, and so that was, I guess, the main reason why, yeah, I, yeah. why I ended up going into powerlifting because it's a much easier sport to train for as well. It's literally, you get angry, you turn up, you put some effort in and then you go home. That's it. Right. So yeah. Interesting. I never knew that difference. 
No. <laughs> so spent three years or working out of the other gym. Mm-hmm. It's during this time you're then thinking about your you've also got your own gym now. Is that, that that seed starting to think about I can I think ever since you know, working I think ever since working in the gym in Chester, it was in the back of my head. Um of this would be cool if I had one of these. And then um it basically just came up one year. Um there was a time so that they were at the point of expansion. They were ready to um basically so there was two units next to each other. They were ready to push into the unit that the current fusion gym was in because they were overrun with clients and they're doing really well and they've just opened another gym in Peel now as well. Right. So, you know, they've continued to expand. It's good. And um, I was at the point where I was thinking, okay, maybe I could start doing some of this as purely as myself and, you know, really go out on a limb. And Tom Riley, who is the manager of Riley's Garden Centre, who I was friends with, who I've been training with um, for about a year, two years at this point, because he's a sprinter. So it's kind of similar, similar training principles behind the speed and strength requirements and that sort of thing. Um, he was like, have you ever thought about opening your own gym? And so, you know, the idea was in my head and I was like, well, you know, yeah, I've always thought about it. And he's like, basically I've got a really big shed um, (laughs) that you could, you could use as a gym. And then that's it. Literally fusion barbell is now there. Um, and it's doing really well. I have to admit, like there's, there's no reservations with what we did. So it's the Eden, the God. Eden Garden Centre, or mm-hmm. by where Robinsons is there, mm-hmm. and yeah, you th- through the, in the sh- compounds yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, you go through yeah. sort of in the shop there, and it's around. You obviously kindly show me around out yeah. the back there. Yeah, so it's um, it's really cool because it's not really obvious where it is, mm-hmm. and I like that. It's not like a case of every man and his dog can walk in off the street. You kind of have to put a bit of effort in just to find it, yeah. and I like that because. I, I want people to put a bit of effort in before they get to you so they can't just come to see you off a whim because yeah. off a whim never lasts. Think People going, okay, I need to do this in my life. Where can I go and do this? And then they become attracted to the idea of our gym. That's cool because then they have to put some effort into yeah, find yeah. it. So, so that's interesting because that's one of the things when I mentioned at the start there about when you go on your Instagram feed. Hmm. Maybe... To set the scene, then, because there's the things that jumped out at me when you look at just your logo for your for the for the brand, I suppose that you yes. have now, and the, and the words around that. Talk mm-hmm. us through that, because that's the mm-hmm. thing that kind of really caught my eye. Uh, so the kind of key key aspects I think you you promote is certainly is my observations as a, a non gym person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's um there's two things to kind of um, differentiate between first. So fusion barbell is the gym. Itself, so it's the entity and it's it's the place, it's the physical existence of a place. My business of PB Sports Performance um, is, I guess, the coaching aspect of that gym. So that they they are kind of separate, and they will be completely separate very soon. Currently, they're all under one company, but um, so they kind of have two slightly different approaches. The Fusion Barbell, very simple principle. I. When I, ever since I have like managed or worked in a gym, I've always loved the opportunity of having a set of keys going into the gym and making that space for that little period of time when I'm training, like my home space, like my, um, my experience. I can completely cultivate that when there's nobody there or there's very few people there, you know, you put your headphones in and it's like class. And then you go through the period of time when you're working in a commercial gym and, 
um, I don't know why a commercial gym. Obviously, mine's a commercial gym, but yeah, I know a, a you traditional yeah, gym, yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, traditional gym, really busy, and it's you know difficult to really get in your zone of training for any longer than like a single set because there's always people around and people want to talk to you and all the rest of it and people are annoying. And um, <laughs> just a general sweeping statement. Yeah, that, that general I agree with. sweeping <laughs> statement. But yeah, I'll make that. No, I agree. With um, and so that was a big motivation for me to have this cool little space that felt different the moment you walked in. Yeah. And so the fact it's in like a timber frame building just yeah. kind of gives it a little quirk and it's yeah. it's nice in that sort of sense. But we're 24 hour, so anybody can come in at any time. Obviously that's the definition of 24 hour. But um, it gives people the opportunity to have a little bit of control over what they want to do. So if they want to at the moment, if you, traditionally, you have to organize your life around when you're going to train. And so it's like, okay, there's a class on at that time. That means I have to do this, this, this before, this, this, this afterwards. Um, you can go in any time you want. So you can just literally organize your life yeah. how you want it and then slot the gym into where it fits. I like that. Yeah. I like that idea behind it. Um, and it's realistically, it's a small group of people who are all like-minded in the idea that change is not something that is comfortable and you have to become you have to become uncomfortable before you can challenge before you can become a new version of yourself and that that in a nutshell i guess is fusion barbell um we are promoting the fact that yeah change is difficult and change is supposed to be a struggle you have to be a little bit off balance before you can feel balanced um but then the pv sports performance is taking a slightly more holistic approach to this. So one thing I've had to change my perspective of over the past few years and from the experiences that we've spoken about was that the gym is one aspect of life. And like I said, with the guy who wants to squat 200 kilos, you know, all these other things he has to deal with. The gym is one aspect of life and there's so many other things that need to be addressed for you to be able to take advantage of the fact that you're training in a gym. Um, being a strength and conditioning coach as your main title tends to have a certain connotation with it within the sense that you're trying to make people strong and you're trying to make people conditioned to be strong for a long period of time or however long they need to be strong for. Um, and so that makes the difference between like an endurance runner. They need to have certain strength to be able to tolerate the loads of their own body weight, but you need to be able to do that several hundred thousand times to be able to go for a run, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so... PB sports performance from April, realistically, um, the next month or so is 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 changing to uh, PB human performance because I I have been coaching this way for a long period of time now, but it's a more holistic approach to recovery, to um, what people put into their body, to what people do with their body once they are recovered and how they have energy. Um, the habits that people have on a daily basis and how you perceive yourself. That's basically like the five strands of what I'm trying to do now as a coach, trying to develop those five things in either a maintenance phase or a maintenance method or a development method. And, and that's it. And so that is the branding of PB sports performance. And the realistically, the, 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 the statement is, or the PB human performance, the statement is, do you know how the best you have ever felt actually feels? Because a lot of people don't, mm. a lot of people can't think of a time when they've actually felt fantastic and they don't know how that feels. And I've felt that way in moments 
and in fleeting moments and it's a really amazing place to be and that is what I want other people to have felt and to understand how that feels to truly feel you are in control of your life you are in control of your perception you're in control of your body and you have put yourself in that position yeah. mm -hmm. so, so I've got loads to dig in there if you don't mind <laughs> uh, so, go for it so, so, ha so ha habit then yes where where does your interest in that particular subject matter and I mean it's something I've become sort of from listening to I suppose not around sport probably outside of sport but, uh, habits of just well-being mind habits to get to get into and just I, I felt a, a massive knock-on effect in my own life of trying to try and pick up good habits and I presume for, for you when you're looking at what you're doing that's in sport I use the word sport fitness yep. and outside as well of your own life as well I see sorry outside of, your, outside of sport in your own life mm -hmm. yeah what was the question just more where when you're looking at that promotion of those habits with with your hat on is that both sports and life oh sorry. You, so you'd be taught to st students clients about habits of mm. everyday life well, yeah, sport is a part of life. You have to remember that. And um, I think that's something that people often forget, especially in recreational sport. People seem to think that the sport that they're doing is like this separate part of their life. And it, it, I think when you do that, it doesn't have the same value. If you have your sport or your physical activity as a significant factor within your life, it can teach you many things. And that's really important. But from the habit side of things, um, we look at it from both perspectives, but it's the habits that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that will give you energy and, you know, motivation. I'm not really a big fan of motivation, but they, they will give you the tools and the experiences and the setup to be able to do your sporting activity. The habits that you have within your sporting activity will set you up to feel proud of yourself that will then tie into further habits down the line. Mm -hmm. So it's all like, have you read Atomic Habits? Uh, I've got it on my order, but whether I've gone through it, I think I might start it a few months back. Like that is, if anybody hasn't listened to it, it is the number one like bang for your buck thing to listen to. It's not very long. It's very easily, easily digestible. And it is basically, we create habits um, that stack on one on top of one another. So, for example, best a personal example for me, um, I was always rubbish with flossing my teeth. I am now not so rubbish with flossing my teeth. And the simple approach, which I forgot how easy it is to put yourself into a position, by putting the little flossing thing... I have listened to it now, you say that, because that's on this, yeah. By putting the little flossing thing next to your toothbrush... As outrageous as that sounds, that is, it's, it reduces the barrier of, okay, that's next in line. I need to do that afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then I personally like the feeling of mouthwash. And so it's kind of like, okay, I need, to, I need a reward for flossing my teeth because mouthwash kind of feels nice. Some of them, some of them burn the hell out of my <laughs> mouth and I hate it. I have to get the right one. And so it's like, you, 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 you know you're going to brush your teeth every day, hopefully, twice a day. <laughs> potentially yeah. um, you, you you know you're going to do that so we have this habit in our life that we're going to go brush our teeth but for some reason flossing for a minute or two minutes is 
not going to do that. Don't have time for that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so you brush your teeth, the floss thing's next to it, and then the bottle of the mouthwash is just beyond it. Yeah. So it's a case of, okay, I have this little stepping stone, yeah. brush my teeth because I know I'm going to do that. To get to the mouthwash, I need to go via the floss. Yeah, yeah. Do that, mouthwash, done, boom. Yeah, yeah. And then it's part of the routine and that's it. That's a habit. Yeah, Simple yeah. as that. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. I just want to go back to one statement she said there is that don't agree or don't... Motivation. Yeah, yeah, you know where I was going to go. Um, Get off our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 yes to that, sorry, no. What, um, what was that comment yeah, around? It's kind of, yeah, why, why did you say that? Is that because you believe routine, if you put these routines and habits in place, that, in a sense, is what motivation is? 100%. Yeah. Um, from personal experience, having had to motivate myself in multiple times when I used to train, for example, well, still train, but the old school approach was I really had to motivate myself to get super psyched up for like certain lifts and all that sort of thing. So you'd be like listening to those inspirational music and like speeches and stuff on the way to the gym and you're like, I'm gonna crush this workout. It's gonna be class. But then something bad happens and it doesn't go to plan and you have this big like big dip and then you have to re-motivate yourself with this huge climb back out of this rut to then get back up to the next bit and you retry again and then you fail again motivation is like this tiny little tiny little thing that people rely on far too much it's like a trick it's the equivalent of a supplement it's a supplemental thing to put into your life not the thing to rely on mm -hmm. and we all know people who rely on eating supplements and drinking supplements instead of eating food um, motivation is the same thing. It's if you're relying on motivation to get yourself out of bed, then you need to reevaluate life realistically because you're going to get out of bed. Like you have to accept that that's going to happen realistically. You're going to get up and you're going to do whatever it is you're going to do within that day. If you have five things in front of you when you first get up that are part of your habitual routine and they happen to be um, putting on some running trainers or putting on some walking shoes then you're going to go for a walk because it's in the part of your it's in the part of your plan if you have to motivate yourself to go for a walk then there's all, all it takes is one little fleeting thought to be like oh, i can't be asked today i'm not going to yeah. do that or say you have to listen to your motivational music your spotify dies for something like that you don't have any internet your, your headphones um don't work that day or whatever you know all these sorts of things so many barriers that can or sorry there's so many things that can affect that and just stop you um if you have just all these habitual processes in place then you don't need motivation you're just you're doing it anyway and so again simple example for me when i'm in the gym and i ever feel like i can't be asked with training today because i'm tired whatever reason um there's two points here <laughs> two points before I get to this. There's the the precursing situation that has made you feel like, why are you in that situation not feeling motivated? I'll come back to that. Remind me to come back to that. But when you're in that situation, all you need to do is one super minimum barrier to entry task that is a step. So for example, for me, there's this machine in the gym. It's called a deadmill. It's basically a non-motorized treadmill that's at a bit of an incline. Everybody hates it. I love it because everybody hates it. And so I walk on that for five minutes and that's it. That, so if I have decided that I can't be asked training that day, that's my sole training for the day. So it's like, okay, I'm going to go walk on that for five minutes, done. And it's like walking up a steep hill for five minutes. In the process of doing that for five minutes, your 
physiology is kicking you into gear thinking, okay, we're about to do some exercise. As that starts to circulate, your perception of what you're doing changes and then your your psychology changes and you think, okay, I don't feel that bad. By the time you finish five minutes on the deadmill, you're basically ready to train. And that's a habitual process that I've done so many times that even when I feel like completely like shit, I feel like death, I'm really tired. You go do five minutes. By the time you're done on that, you're ready. Your mm. body has been reminded of what it feels like to get ramped up. And so then it's there, yeah. done. In the same sense, you do it often enough. Brushing your teeth will, will motivate you um, to floss because you've done it so many times in a row. It's there, it's there, it's there. That can happen in reverse as well. So in the same sense of like, when I think about cake, I want cake because it's a satisfying thing. When I eat cake, I get a little endorphin rush and I'm like, yes, I've just had cake. Yeah. So you can have that. Or if you never have cake in your existence, you're never gonna have that problem. Going back, that ties in somewhat subtly to the, why did you feel yeah. bad in the first place? The reason you feel bad in the first place is your own fault because you haven't done something earlier on in that day or the day before. Um, and this is, again, motivation, I think, personally, is rubbish because people don't take ownership of their own actions. If you aren't feeling motivated for that day, have you, ask yourself a question, have you slept properly the night before? If not, why? Have you eaten properly the day before? If not, why? Have you drank enough water the day before? If not, why? Have you had some kind of sunshine? Again, if not, why? Um, and have you exposed yourself to some kind of slow and steady state exercise like going for a walk? And again, if not, why? Most of the time, people have either forgotten or they are too lazy to do it or they have prioritized other things that aren't as important as those five things. And as a consequence, now their motivation is low because now the training oh, seems too much. I can't possibly do it today yeah. because there's other things that are more important, like sitting in front of the TV and watching Netflix or playing computer games. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't disagree uh, with that, that, that whole principle. I think something I've noticed of that coming back to those good habits that they, they and they talk about, you watch YouTube stuff about that. It just creates more good habits I suppose I look just when you're talking now I'm looking back at things I do that try and I put motivational stuff on to to listen to and think do I really need it uh, I don't know now I need to think about that but it's interesting then about that ownership of when you talk about those sort of things about owning why do I feel like this and I go back to I always talking about my, my good friend Jacko who's uh, who's got a leadership book and he talks about taking extreme ownership of mm -hmm. your problem in business. If there's a problem in the business and if you're the leader of that business, it's, it's your fault yeah. that's happening. It's the same principle. Good old why Mr. Willock. Yeah. What? Why do I feel? Yeah. Exactly. Why do I? You know. Why do I feel like this? Well, it was because I had the takeaway last night. It's because I didn't sleep well. I was looking at my phone late yeah. and therefore didn't get a great night's sleep. Didn't drink enough water. I'm responsible for how I. That the reality is mo most things. Obviously, there's certain things outside of your control in your life that you could, you know, will make you feel worse, or you know, you might not sleep because you know family members not well. But principally, ninety most of it's in your control, then, isn't it? Yeah. So take ownership of it. Hundred percent. Extreme that, ownership, as Jacko would say. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that, and I kind of firmly believe in that. I think over the years of learning about that sort of thing and learning about the mind and all that sort of thing, you, you subtly start applying it into your life and you just give it some credit and you say, okay, let's see what happens if I try this. And that is one of the big things that has, you know, worked and helped me in the past. I used to, 
there was a time when I was setting up or in the early stages of my business where I was always like, um, I don't want to say depressed. That's, I don't, again, I don't really like that term, but you know, I was in a more, more commonly negative mindset than I was positively. I was more commonly um, not happy with what I was doing than I was happy with what I was doing. And the, the as simple as it sounds, I wasn't prioritizing my food and my sleep and enjoyable exercise, and that is it. Yeah. And once you put that into perspective, and I wasn't being organized enough either as well, I wasn't making lists of what I needed to do, I was thinking about all these cool ideas and not doing any of them. Yeah. So there's no satisfaction, there's no end completion of tasks that mo- well, yeah, no, yeah. Um, shh, we didn't say that. No, but you're right. It's just a different type of motive. I mean, yeah. the things you talked about earlier, it's not those doing those right things. Is a mo- It's it's mm. subtly, but you are motivating yourself the next day to do yeah. it right. But you're not you're not listening to that power music or those 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 speeches. But you you're still motivating yourself. You're just doing it rather than listening to a video. You're doing it because you're eating right. You're drinking the yeah. water and you're doing those things. So exactly. Motivation is not a swear word here. It's it's just totally different from how the traditional people have yeah. go, I want to listen to this speech by this guy. He gets me motivated. You've just done it a different way by empowering yourself, really, rather than, rather than also relying on a third party to do it mm-hmm. for you. I like the Jacko Willock. Um, he, was, he was on a... The Jacko Willock? I like Jacko Willock. Mm-hmm. When he was on a podcast once, and um, you could tell the guy didn't understand. Uh, he was explaining something. He was going, so, you know, you get up at 5 o'clock every morning or 4.30 or whatever time it is, every morning and you go for a run. And he was like, yes. Is, so what happens when you know do you ever have like an off day or do you have have a day you know day of rest you know you ever get wake up and you feel like you're not going to do it and he's no <laughs> it's like oh is that not what happened he was like, well no because i told myself i'm going to do it so i do it and that's it <laughs> yeah. that you know it doesn't have to get more complicated than that you know if if you want an ex- i think it's easy to make up a thousand excuses as to why you're not going to do something but it's not that difficult just to actually do the things that you say you're going to do. So to expand that out, he on one of his he talks about people ask him how do you get out of bed at that time in the morning, and he'll go, "I swing my legs out of bed and step out of bed," <laughs> yeah. which is basic yeah. kind of okay. And I suppose part of his military background brings yeah, that brings that brings that process into his head. But then the question then goes, I guess, to expand on your put or to repeat really your point earlier is if you can't do that, why is it because you had a late night because you've yeah, not eaten the right you, food, your body's not rested, you haven't, you know, drank enough. And it's just, again, those great habits that then feed the, again, looking at what you do at the, the gym, those, all these small little aspects. And if you put them all in the right place, yep. it's just, again, back to, we talk about sky and their marginal gains mm. for, for cycling. It's just life, small, small gains in your life, accumulate them together and they make massive impact. Huge impacts. I think something you know we have to take into consideration the power that your brain has and the power of your that your mind does have in this process and people I think take it for granted a little bit in the sense that they think that by doing a physical thing the motivation is just going to come and so I've set a goal to squat 200 kilos going back to the other option I've set a goal to squat 200 kilos um so it's you know it's going to happen but you have to set up absolutely everything in place as well. There's, um, I think I did a post the other week that was about plan all the way to the end. So plan with the end in mind because you need to create all of those steps for it to be a case of, okay, what's the step this week? Oh yeah, okay, I need to do that. Yeah. If you've got all of those steps in place, it's gonna be much easier to achieve. And again, that is that is motivation. Motivating you to go and do those things. It's yeah. just 
like I say, it's the word motivation, yeah. but that is ultimately motivation, isn't it? Because I've got these steps. Yeah. It's me defending the word motivation, having you slagged it off. <laughs> but it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the same. No, it is one of them. Yeah, it, is, yeah. it is a word that is useful. And yeah. it, is, it is something that helps. And it's, it's. But I'm the same. I don't think you need someone screaming at you to, no. to go. If you want to do, if you think it's the right or it's the right thing to do, you shouldn't need someone to either tell you or to do it. It should just be, you should build it in that it's just. Everybody's, everybody's version and everybody understands that word differently as well like yeah, if yeah. you you say the word motivation to a thousand people they'll all mm. bring up different images in their head you'll have some people with military screaming at them and you'll have some people with some kind of habitual routine it all means something slightly different yeah. to a lot of people yeah so there's loads more to plow through but I'm conscious of inevitably of time with things so just perspective mm. and you mentioned that earlier and you've mentioned a few times about the you know your mind and when you talk about perspective, it's a very open, very open question. But where do you do you see your yourself something different from your mind and and your you know what? Where do you stand on that general subject? I appreciate that's such an open question, but um, I get the impression it's a big part of how how you tick. I guess. Yeah. The um, the simple answer is there's three things in my life that truly provide me with enjoyment um and then one thing that kind of encompasses all of it so again this is on one of those times when i was quote unquote more depressed but again not depressed i was I just I mean. um confused about what the, this confused about the decisions i was making um and where i was going with those decisions and what that was potentially leading to. And so I wrote down everything that was going on in my life at that particular point, like literally everything from the past week I could possibly think of, what meals I ate. Um, and I realized David Goggins is a big advocate of this. He's in his book, he's like, just do this for a week and see what happens. So it's really interesting. But everything, everything I could possibly think of, when I went to bed, what I did before I went to bed, what I did during the day, what work I did, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I just loosely categorized everything into different chunks. So I put things into like nourishment, into um, output and into all these other things. And there was three reasons why I chose to do absolutely everything that, that gave my life meaning. So I didn't put things like sleep in that gave my life meaning because you have to sleep, you have to eat, you have to drink fluids. So it's one of those things. Um, things that you have to do didn't account for. Why did I choose to do any of the things that I choose to do was the main question I kind of got to. And there's three uh, reasons, basically. I have some kind of curiosity strain. I like to find the answer to a question that I don't understand. I, do, I like to find out new information. I love the feeling of when you sit back in your chair and you go, that is mind blowing. That's like one of my favorite feelings. To be humbled by your lack of knowledge is a really nice position to be in. I, I draw this little triangle on my leg when I'm doing this because it reminds me which of these three points they are because it yeah. is like a little triangle of, of me. There's another one that is I love being the person at the front of the pack. I love being the person who is leading by example. So, for example, people are saying, oh, I'm just lacking the motivation and blah, blah, blah and all that sort of thing. But if you're the person who's saying motivation is bullshit, then they, if you're the person that makes that if you are the reason that makes somebody go, okay, I'm going to get up and do it anyway, then that's cool because you are having a positive influence on other people's lives. And if you are the leader of that small, even if it is small, small group of people to change their lives as well, that's an amazing feeling. Um, and the third one is some kind of 
altruistic component. I love that word as well. If you, on the moments when I'm doing something for a truly altruistic purpose, again, that gives you like this really nice, amazing feeling. So if you do something purely for the benefit of the other person that you're doing it for, that is a really, really amazing feeling. You help somebody across the street. You help somebody carry their shopping. You buy somebody a gift. You walk past somebody in the street and you just give them a compliment for no apparent reason other than the fact that you feel that it's a justified thing to say. They're all little things that we can do on a daily basis that make, well, when I do them anyway, that makes me feel really cool. And so that those three things realistically are like, are the three things that give my life meaning, I guess. And so I guess it's kind of like the point of what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. Trying to, the, the perception of my life is is to promote and to deliver those three things within everything I do. And so all of the businesses that I am involved with, all of the companies that I have been involved with, all of the things that I do have one of those three or multiple of those three things in involved with them, mm. that sort of thing. And then the outside little ring that kind of encompasses it all, it all has to be fun because I've spent so much time in my life for various different reasons, doing things that are just purely for like development or purely for like improvement and they're not enjoyable at all. And this always brings me back to um, one of my first jobs was working for my dad. He's a carpenter, Palmer Studios, um, just a little subtle name drop. Um, So the, when I worked for him, one of my main jobs, because I wasn't very skilled, was either painting, sanding, or like D, um, like getting rid of old paint off of things. So I don't know what you would call that, D painting. And um, the process of doing it was stripping. mind stripping. That's the one. Mind numbingly boring. And I really didn't enjoy it because it was just, it's just not enjoyable or satisfying to do at all. But the end product was always nice. So the end product was satisfying, but the thing that I was doing in the meantime was terrible and I hated it. And that was a big moment in my life to realize that I have to enjoy the process of something. I can't just, the satisfaction at the end isn't enough for me. Even if it is a really satisfying thing, I have to enjoy the process of it. And so all three of those things bring me enjoyment, but I also have to remember that there's some things in my life I just have to do purely for fun. So being selfish is a part of that purely for fun you can be selfishly altruistic and that's a really weird situation to be in but that is a kind of like the i guess the surrounding perimeter of all three of those things to give me my my purpose as cheesy as that sounds no no not all i can relate to all of it to be honest which is probably when we first met and chatted why i'm intrigued by you by you so just uh just to wrap up then in regard to i was going back and you talked about a few books you're listening to, et cetera, mm. et cetera there. For, for the listeners out there, outside of Atomic uh, Habits, uh, and obviously, look, you've always got to look up Goggins or Jacko, other people or other, yeah, use the word inspiration, is, again, maybe similar in the motivation side, but people that can go, we can go and all learn off. You got any names that spring to mind? Yeah, I'm just getting my audible up now because right. I need this. Um, I think like the most, some of the most influential books I've listened to um Ryan Holiday okay. from The Obstacle is the Way. He did a book. It was absolutely class. It's just loads of little stories of people who have overcome adversity and the path, because just because a path has a bump in the road um, or just because a path has a boulder in the way, it doesn't mean it's the end of the road. It just means you have to find a way either around. through it, around it or over it. 
Um, and that's really cool. And he's done another book called Stillness is the Key, which again is, those two are probably two of my most favorite books. Um, I listen to The Obstacle is Away probably at least once a year, like periodically, just not enough. Um, Do much meditation and yeah, yoga um, and like that. Again, the power of the mind, going back to that. Only recently have I been experimenting with this idea, but the if you meditate on what... This is, it's a hard thing to describe without making it sound so unbelievably cheesy, but the product of your the future version of yourself, so whoever you are going to walk into in five years' time, one year's time, two years' time, is is a product of the way that you hold yourself now. So if you feel insecure about yourself for whatever reason, and you continue to feel insecure about yourself, you're gonna feel insecure about yourself five years now, five years from time, five years from now. If you can meditate on the strengths that you have, if you can meditate on about yourself and truly know who you are in this moment, then you have a much better idea or a much better potential to be able to walk into the future version of yourself that you actually want to be. If you don't know who you are and you don't know what your insecurities are and you don't truly understand yourself, then you're really gonna struggle to create the future version of yourself that you actually want. Mm. And so that, I think, is the key to meditating for me. It's to understand myself and who I am and look at myself truly in a different light, I think. So yeah, I have been. I have been meditating and, and experimenting with it quite a lot from a guy called Dr. Joe Dispenza, another book, okay. well, another series of books by him. But it, all of these books, I think I could name 15 or 20 from my Audible list. Yeah, I think if you go through your, your feed, you did a, I think one of the, again, the first times when, when I was recommended to chat to you, you did a screenshot on this 20 nine, books. Yeah, there was, there, yeah, it was through your feed. How many was it? Was it nine or 10 books or something like that yeah, that yeah. will change your life if yeah, you listen yeah. to them and they're good Christmas. It was, that was the link. Good Christmas present to get people. But um, they all have really similar threads to them, which is what the, again, um, subtle promotion, is what PB Human Performance is trying to promote. It's the fact that all of these habits that we try and change, all the positive things we try and change about ourselves, they all come from... Um, they're all more powerful if they come from a truly uh, an identity side of you. So going back to the habit thing slightly, if I say I'm trying to quit smoking, you're, you're still a smoker as a human, but you're trying to quit. It's not going to happen. You've made that an external thing that is probably going to break down at the first hurdle. If you start calling yourself, I'm not, a, sorry, no, I'm not a smoker. That is a, a hugely different use of language that is more empowering. And basically... In a nutshell, how all of these audiobooks and all of these books on self-development, personal development, all the rest of it, they all come down to, can you truly meditate, visualize, image, um, or imagine, sorry, yourself in a different way and then walk into that version of yourself? That is the most powerful thing that you can do. And if you can truly picture it, then it will happen because, well, that's the law of attraction that is all that sort of thing but it all comes from a true image of or a true self-belief of what you want to do and what you're trying to do i think so yeah i could that picture on my instagram is probably the best yeah. most yeah. um beneficial one because i could literally i could bring through a lot of them yeah and yeah, they yeah, have yeah, promoted them, recommend yeah. Having a look at that. um yeah yeah 
So, so thanks for coming in. No uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Mm. I think there's loads more we could dig into, but appreciate people. Well, maybe they do want a four-hour podcast like Jacko, <laughs> but maybe they don't. So uh, maybe we'll get you back, or hopefully get you back in due course as well. So no, I appreciate your time coming in. It's been very very insightful. And just one question, actually, journals. Do you still do journals? Yeah, when I when I feel I need to, I am. I will because I suggest in about ten years you'd be writing a book. That would be my comment (laughs) on what you've learned and what you. Because again, we talk to you, and a lot of what I, I mean, I listen to similar types of books as well. A lot of what you talk about here is what I see and read and hear Mm. in books. So. You've, you've got that knowledge to share with others so I suspect in ten, well probably now in fairness but maybe more experience as life goes on that you could be we could be very well having you uh, doing our audible I appreciate books. that maybe <laughs> maybe you never know stranger things have happened <laughs> so thanks yeah. again Sam appreciate yeah. it no problem thank you do you want cool. to tidy up Matt and yeah we'll... do the usual so wherever you're listening to us today uh, please like subscribe share and give those five star reviews pretty please Facebook with the M Word Podcast, Twitter, Max Sports Pod, and on Insta we are the M Word IOM. Thanks. So I just actually just want to think and on. I want to just thank uh, I suppose every guest ultimately because a few people have said to me that they, they enjoy the pod and you know why we do it. And I was saying to a guy a few days ago that I just do it because like we talk about books there and learning about from books, mm. just learning from other people. So therefore the time I'm investing in this isn't anything about monetizing the podcast or anything of that nature. It's just about learning from people. But, and I appreciate that someone might thank me for spending the time to do that, but I'm not really doing it as the guest because the guests are spending spending their time to come in. They're not paid, as Sam will testify, (laughs) uh, other than a nice cup of tea maybe and a cuddle off a dog. So I suppose to Sam and all the guests I've been on and you know hopefully come on in the future, most importantly, thanks for their time and sharing their knowledge, which I think is... Is very, uh, very, agree, very yeah. fascinating. So, uh, thanks again. Thanks for letting us into your ears. It's word out from on and word out from Matt.